This week, we're going to continue in our series, uh, 12 Words. We've been looking at 12 essentials of spirituality. We've been looking at the rock bottom, the foundation of what it means to live a spiritual life. And we've been engaging it through a metaphor of packing, unpacking, and clearing house, which is incredibly relevant to me right now because my wife and I are expecting our first child at the end of August. Thank you. But one of the, the fun parts about stuff like that is we had to make a nursery. So we went to a room that I, have, I just never use in our house. We started to go clean it out, and wouldn't you know it, I opened the closet, and somehow it was full of junk. I mean, we never used this space, and still somehow I filled it to the roof with things that I haven't looked for in years. And this is just the truth of our lives, right? We have entire closets full of things that we forgot we were even carrying around with us. And we have to go through seasons, life change, where we just think about it, and we get to work, and it motivates us to clean house a little bit. And I bring this up because I think this is what spirituality is like, too. I think all of us, we start out from home with a, a, the essentials of our faith. But over the course of our lives, we start to accumulate what I would call junk. We may have left home with essentials like trust, hope, growth, healing. But over the course of our lives, maybe we picked up boxes of things like shame, self-loathing, judgmentalism, hate. And just like our physical homes in our spiritual lives, there are these seasons that we have to go through where we learn by unlearning. When we just get honest about what we are carrying around and we declutter a little bit so we can get back to the basics, to get back to what spirituality was meant to be. So each week, we've been engaging the 12 essentials through their opposites. We've been looking at the boxes of junk that we've packed on top of these essentials, the ones that we have to pull out of our closet, we have to name, we have to declutter, we just have to throw away. And this week, we're going to talk about everyone's favorite, denial. What does it mean to declutter the box of denial so we can get back to the essential of self-honesty? Before I get started, I want to define these terms because they can get a little hazy for us. Self-honesty is simply the ability and the willingness to objectively and accurately see ourselves as we actually are. In other words, it's just to be honest with ourselves. We go through processes of self-reflection where we just simply and honestly name things in our lives, whether it be behavior, choices, brokenness, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So for example, there was a moment in my life a couple years ago where I just had to come face to face with the fact that I am an angry person. I struggle with anger. It's one of the root sins in my life. So self-honesty is just cutting through the nonsense and just saying that simply as it is so I can start to deal with it. On the other hand, we have denial, which spiritually is just the opposite of self-honesty. It is the unwillingness or the inability to name the things in our lives truthfully. Denial is when we have every part of our life pointing to something being true, and we just can't see it. And I say that I had to go through that process a few years ago, because for most of my life, I lived in denial about my anger. It was always the circumstance. It was always someone else's fault. Even though every time I played basketball, every time I got annoyed with a coworker, every time I played a board game and I didn't win, <laughs> I'm yelling. <laughs> but I'm not angry. 
my brother just shouldn't have beat me in the game. <laughs> and I actually have a clip that's like a, a funny example of both of these that I want to run. It's from a comedy troupe that I really like. Hands. Have courage, my friend. Yeah. Uh, Hans, I've just noticed something. These communists are all cowards. <laughs> have you looked at our caps recently? Our caps? The badges on our caps. Have you looked at them? What? No. A bit. They've got skulls on them. <laughs> have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them? <laughs> I don't, so... Hans... Are we the baddies? <laughs> For those who don't know, that's a comedy group from England called Mitchell and Webb, and I love them. They're hilarious. Um, <laughs> that clip gets me every time. But I think that clip also hits at some of the, the, the truths of these spiritual realities, right? So for like one, self-honesty is simple to define, but it's incredibly hard to do. It's often scary and usually kind of painful just to name the brokenness in our lives. And I think a lot of us are much worse at it than we want to admit. We all think we're pretty self-honest, but there's always a little bit of us that despite the fact that our gear is covered in skulls, it's still a question at the end of that sentence. Like, are we the baddies? <laughs> or, on the other hand, I think denial is a part of the human experience and it's impossible to see it when you're in it. We all end up in that space. We're like, yes, I am wrong. I made the mistake in this argument. I need to change. But then we go, nah, it's probably someone else's fault. That's not real. I think this is just part of who we are. We just can't see it sometimes. And it's the challenging move from denial to self-honesty that I think is crucial for a healthy spirituality. I think it's critical to discipleship. And it's what we're going to tackle today. And we're going to tackle it through one of Jesus' most famous teachings, his teaching on judging other people. And I think you'll see why as we start to walk through it. So it starts in Matthew 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And though this verse is very famous, I think it's often misunderstood. You see, we read it often when we do something wrong, never when someone we don't like does something wrong, to mean that we should never discern or evaluate whether something is right or wrong in our lives or in the world. Which is a problem, because Jesus calls his disciples constantly to change their lives to be more like him. He challenges his disciples to do things like relinquish their addiction to retaliation, violence, and vengeance. To give up hate in their heart to take part in the healing of the injustices of our world. And I don't think we can do that if we can't discern when we participate in those things. I don't think Jesus is telling us that simple discernment is a problem. I think it's something much more dark and a little insidious. And it starts with that word that makes all of our skin crawl, which is judgment. To judge. Now, in the text, in Greek, that word is krino. And this word is actually very diverse in Scripture. It can mean both good and bad things. It's not always a negative. So, for example, sometimes we would say, we're going to make a judgment, 
about whether we like Batman or Superman. That is a preference. It uses the same word in the Greek, and that's fine. Or we say, we're going to judge the chili cook-off. That's not a problem. I don't think Jesus is telling us that's a sin, to pick which chili is the best. No, I think when you look at the text, this is obviously a negative connotation. And what it is, is it's something that I think is radical. Because if you notice, Jesus flat out prohibits it. There are no ifs or buts about it. And it has something to do with what I would say is the action in which we pronounce absolute guilt upon another human being. See, what it is in this text is it's the moment when we make a judgment about who a person is, and then we expand it to who they will always be based on an evaluation of their character, their choices, or their behaviors that we've observed. And it sounds heady, absolute guilt, pronouncement of absolute fate, but it really isn't. I think you'll actually recognize it pretty easily in our world, in our lives, if I just walk through the process a little bit. So, as I do this, think about a person or a group of people that you've done it to. Because, spoiler alert, we've all done it. So, someone does something that we think is wrong. It's a behavior, an action, or a choice. What's the first thing we do? We evaluate it. We, we make a decision on whether it should or shouldn't be taking place. This is not inherently a bad thing. Sometimes someone is doing something dangerous. Sometimes someone is doing something that might harm us. We need to make a choice, we need to evaluate, get out of there. However, we don't stop with the evaluation of the choice, do we? We take that first extra step into the waters that Jesus is warning us about, because the next thing we usually do is we expand it to include their character. It's not just the choice that we evaluate. That evaluation covers the whole person really quickly in our minds. The person who lied to us didn't just lie, they become a liar. And once we've done that, how easy is it for us to begin to change our internal posture towards the person? I think we start to adopt a posture of separation and superiority. What do I mean by that? Just think about it. How quickly does it become, well, they did that because they are that kind of person? And in the middle of that sentence, we put a gap between us and them. A separation in which suddenly, when we think about them, there is a moral separation between me and them on the character level. I'm not the kind of person who would do that sort of thing, because I'm a better person. And you see that move, the second part of that is superiority. How easy is it for us to, at that moment, elevate our character just a little bit? And then we do, usually, what is the final and what the scriptures would say is the worst step of all. We condemn. But we don't just condemn, we usually imagine that God agrees with us in our condemnation of that person. I mean, just think about it. Condemnation is the belief that our judgment about someone or something is absolutely correct, permanent, and final. And once we have decided that this person has bad character, isn't it easy for us to decide that they're going to have bad character for the rest of their lives? It's just the, the attitude at that point. And what we do in that moment, according to the New Testament authors like Paul and James, is we put ourselves in the seat of God's judgment. Paul even compares this action 
to us in our minds imagining ourselves sitting next to God and condemning the person. And we do that. We make this condemnation, we make this judgment, and then we imagine God sitting next to us nodding and being like, yeah, they do suck. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we all do this. It's super gross when I say it out loud, but let's just be honest. This isn't something that those other people do. We all take part in this form of judgment at times in our lives. It's part of the human condition. I mean, I do it to people in traffic. They're driving slow because they're lame. And they, ought, they want me to be late. It's intention, right? So if I do it to people in traffic, of course I sometimes do it to people I disagree with politically. Or maybe I do it to people who lie to me. Or people who don't do what they promise me they're going to do. Or maybe this one, people that I think their attitudes towards the world are a little cruel or hateful or bigoted. I take that jump pretty quickly. And I think this is the heart posture that Jesus is talking about in this verse. And what Jesus does next is so interesting because the next step he takes is to give us a parable, a short metaphorical story that's kind of funny. And it talks about what it means when we live in this space of judgment and condemnation, what our lives begin to look like. And for our purposes today, at the center of this parable is a conversation on denial. So he continues in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus metaphorically tells a story about a person with a log in their eye. I mean, in Greek, it would be a pole, like one of these support beams, just jutting out of their face. It's supposed to be funny. You're supposed to visualize that and laugh. Jesus is a comedian sometimes. And what is, it's, it's supposed to be absurd, because it's like, imagine me walking around with this just like jutting out of my face, and I'm walking around the office like knocking things over, hitting people in the head with it, and whenever anyone brings it up, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a log in my eye, right? That's what you're supposed to visualize. It's absurd. And this is the metaphor that Jesus goes with to talk about what it looks like when we take part in condemnation and judgment. Because is there a better metaphor for denial than someone with a pole sticking out of their face acting like it's all cool? <laughs> and what Jesus starts with is the argument that what judgment and condemnation produces first and foremost is an inability and a denial in how we see ourselves. And what I would say is that to some degree, what this is about is that when we have condemnation and judgment, we develop a posture towards brokenness and failure that only knows one move. Evaluate, judge, separate, see as inferior, and condemn. So what happens when we're the ones with brokenness in our lives? What happens when we fail, when we make the mistake? Well, the posture you learn to judge others with turns on yourself pretty quick. How or the measure we use against everyone else becomes the measure we use against ourselves. 
which means that when we have to look at that brokenness in our life, we have two paths to take. And it ends up in denial in two forms. We go with option one. We take the path of denial in the form of self-righteousness. Our heart does not have room for forgiving failures. All it knows is how to dehumanize, judge, and condemn. And when we look at ourselves, we can't handle that. We cannot hold the same standards that we hold others to. So what do we do? We just deny that we're broken at all. I don't have a log in my eye. I don't know what you're talking about. Because we can't take that step to condemn ourselves like we do everyone else. Or maybe we go with option two. We take the path of denial in the form of self-loathing and shame. Just think about it. We actually do use the standards that we hold others to. We apply it to ourselves, and what do we start to say? I don't have a log in my eye. I am the log. I'm not a bad per- I'm not a person who did a bad thing. I'm just a bad person. If you notice, while those seem to be opposites, they're actually subtly the exact same coin, just different sides. Because both of them prevent us from taking the log out of our eye. The person who's self-righteous just doesn't name it. It's still there, and they just act like it's not. And you can't remove what you don't name. The second person, once it becomes part of their character, once they confuse their brokenness with their identity, how are we ever going to change that? Because to get rid of it would be to get rid of who we think we are. And in both cases, we stay broken. I know that I didn't get to start dealing with my anger problems until I recognized that I'm not an angry person. I am someone who struggles with anger. That is a shift that we must make. But then Jesus does what I really hate. He takes away my ability to believe that my brokenness is just about me. I think a lot of us can relate to this. I like to think that I don't need to deal with my brokenness because I'm the only one being hurt by it. It's my business. It doesn't involve other people. And Jesus says, no, 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 Mike. No, that's never true. How could a broken way of seeing not impact our relationships with other people? What does Jesus describe? The man with the log in his face comes down. He walks up to Connor Mooneyham, and he goes, hey, you got some sawdust right there. Mind if I get that out for you? I'm the splinter removal guy. Can I help you? Do you think I know how to take wood out of a person's eye? So why would you trust me to do that for you? I mean, just think about it for a second. Can I be sure that I can even accurately tell where the log in my eye ends and the speck in Connor's eye begins? Can I know that I'm not just seeing a part of the log that is covering my entire vision? And that's what I'm confusing for brokenness in Connor's life. You see, what Jesus gets at is the most common form in which denial impacts our relationships, projection. You see, one of the things that we do when we can't face our brokenness because we condemn is that we just start focusing on all the brokenness in everyone else. I don't have to look at the junk in my life if I just spend all my time evaluating and condemning the junk in everyone else's. And Jesus gets it. Denying our brokenness does not mean it's not there. The refusal to name it just means you're not self-aware. And you spend your life 
running into other people, and seeing it in everyone else. But sometimes there is a speck in someone else's eye. There actually is brokenness in the other person. They did do something wrong. It is a problem. But let me ask you, are you, person with a log in your face, the kind of person who's going to be able to help them identify what that is and remove it? Are you going to be able to distinguish, like I said, where your log ends and the speck begins? More than that, don't you think that if you knew how to remove logs from a person's eye or splinters, you would have done it to yourself first? Aren't we just a little bit more likely to do more damage or cause more injury because we're trying to do something we are not healthy enough to do and don't know how to do for ourselves? It's like if I had a shattered leg and I saw someone in the audience stub their toe and I said, let me help you with that. I know all about that and also I'm going to judge how you're doing it as I tell you about it. And I want to take a second, I want to stop. Because I actually want to stop and acknowledge something very important about this conversation. You see, does the parable blame the person with the log in their eye for having the log? Does the parable blame the person for having brokenness in their life? No, the only judgment that is cast is on the unwillingness of the person to name it and to deal with it. Jesus doesn't go around in the scriptures casting judgment on people who say, I am utterly broken and I need help. The only people you see Jesus judging in the scriptures are the religious people who say, everyone else is broken and I've got this. You see, I think Jesus is clearly aware that this is part of the human condition. We all have logs in our eyes, period, no exceptions. Which means that self-honesty, naming it, is not about shame, blame, or condemnation. Many of us got these logs in our eyes for things that we did not do. People hurt us. Abuse. Trauma, just being a human being in this world. And Jesus is not condemning us, and he's certainly not telling us that self-honesty is taking responsibility for things that are not our fault. It is about seeing things as they are, owning our side of the street and nothing more, not for the purpose of shame and despair so that we can name it, face it, and heal from it and just get it out of our eyes. And Jesus sees this as crucial for discipleship. Without moving from denial to self-honesty, we just end up denying and projecting our brokenness on everyone else. And we certainly never heal, do we? I think there's a story that I heard a few years ago that covers this perfectly. It's beautiful. It's a story about this Catholic priest in Los Angeles named Father Greg Boyle. I love that picture. Father Greg Boyle has spent the last 30 years working in one of the most violent parts of Los Angeles. It is one of the gang capitals of our country. And primarily, he works with youth who have either committed violent crimes or are in danger of committing violent crimes because of gangs. If you want to talk about a heartbreaking job, a regular part of his Work in ministry is holding funerals for preteens and children. 
Sometimes those youth were killed by other youth in his congregation because they ended up on the wrong side of that gang. And Father Gregory Boyle just gets it. There's this part of this interview where he was talking about this profound but simple truth when it comes to healing broken people. He summarized it simply as this. If you don't name and transform your pain, you're always just going to keep transmitting it. See, when he looked at these kids, kids that we would often judge and condemn as ir irredeemable, kids who I've heard adults call thugs, the worst of the worst, predators, the violent, he looked at these kids and he found a simple truth. If he could help them name where their pain was coming from, if he could just help them name it, not much more, they would almost always begin to heal from things in their life that, quite frankly, we couldn't begin to imagine. Wounds that are deeper than most of us would ever dream of. See, what he found was the things that we condemn most of all are almost always a transmission of wounds, not failed character. And that transmission of their pain that we judge so easily came from that not naming it, so it found a different way out, as it always does. And if he could just get them to name it, to out loud with simple honesty say, this is what happened to me, and this is how it impacted me. These kids would start to change entirely. I'm not kidding. You should read the stories of redemption that came out of this ministry. It is beautiful. And this is why Jesus places such a high priority on us as the church getting this right, us as Christians getting this right. It is the difference between transmitting and healing our wounds. It is the difference between living our entire life condemning everything around us or living a life of grace. And the life of condemnation is an ugly life to live. I can tell you from experience. And I want to close with the process of living this out. Because what I think Jesus is so good at is he's capable of showing us exactly where to start when it comes to unpacking this box of denial so we can get back to the essential of self-honesty. Jesus gets it. Think about the parable. What does Jesus start with? It's what he always starts with. You start with yourself. Don't even try to start pointing out brokenness in other people until you have done this work yourself. Quite frankly, if you haven't done it, you don't know how to help, you don't see the other person clearly, and you don't have the right. Jesus is clear about that. So we begin this work by seeking out an internal posture of humility and grace combined with simple but honest self-reflection. What do I mean by humility? Humility is just a simple and honest and true confession that I think we make every time we come into this space. I am just as broken as everyone else in this world without exception. And I do not see things clearly a lot of the time. When we come into this space, we recognize that we all have logs in our eye. And the sin of my life is not that I was broken, it's that I refuse to name it and deal with it. I think all of us make a confession that we tried living in this world by building our own little kingdoms and it failed miserably. So with humility, we look to a kingdom bigger than our own. 
I am no better than anyone. I am also no worse than anyone. It goes both ways. I'm just human, like everyone else. Which means it's not God and I looking down at those people. The, the, the belief in some separation, that's a delusion. No, it's always all of us standing before God. It's we, not me and God. And there's a person who got me to this point really strongly. It's an author. Because he made me recognize how I am in need of grace as much as anyone else in our world, and we must accept that to begin this self-honesty work well. His name was Brennan Manning. And I'm just going to read you an excerpt from his book that changed my life in some way. He said, because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the lamb dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion is haunted by guilt, but did the best she could faced with grueling alternatives. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being like who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father now selling his body on the street who as he fell asleep each night after his last trick whispers the name of the unknown God he only learned about in Sunday school. But how, we ask, how could those people be with God and I, we often ask, right? And the voice says, they have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the important part. There they are. There we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to faith. This is my favorite part. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is the next ingredient. It lets us approach self-honesty because it shows us a God that tells us there is no condemnation to be found anywhere in him. It's the light of grace is the only thing we found in this God. And this is what allows us to begin that simple, honest, and healthy self-reflection. It lets us look at our lives as they actually are, not as we wish they were. And we can do it without condemning ourselves because we can look at it in the light of grace. I think it's so interesting that we talk about Christ as light. And we always think of that metaphor to mean that we should just stare at him all day. Like, oh, what a pretty light. Have any of you guys gone out recently and stared at the sun? If you are planning to do that later, I urge you not to because that's not what light is for. <laughs> light is to shine and light up what was previously dark so that we can see a little bit more clearly. So when we talk about Christ as light, we talk about the light of grace and love. And it lets us shine a light on what we previously thought we must keep dark. Not for the purpose of shame and despair, but for the purpose of healing and peace because you cannot heal what you cannot see or name.
but with humility, honesty, grace, we can name it. We can just name it. We can face it for what it is without condemning ourselves in the process. That's the essential of self-honesty. That's grace. That's where healing starts. But there's a paradox. Because while Jesus calls us to an internal posture and practice, he is also clear that this is not something we can only do on our own. It requires a step of self-reflection in community. On one hand, it is a regular practice where I just look at my life and I try to name the stuff. But more often than not, I can't do this work without mirrors. Other people. I cannot see me without you. Let's face it. If you could have named it, if you could have seen it, if you could have taken it out on your own, you would have by now. Let's just get real. All of us have that thing in our lives that is broken, that maybe we can't see at all. Maybe we just don't want to acknowledge the magnitude of it. Or maybe we have named it, and we keep trying to take it out on our own, and it just keeps popping back up in our lives. We've all got it. If you think you don't, just ask your spouse. Ask your best friend. Ask your parents. The problem with self-honesty is almost everyone sees that thing before you do. So we need help naming these things. Otherwise, we almost always seem to prefer a little bit of denial or projection than to naming it. And Jesus is clear, when we, need, when we get help from our community, we start the process of getting the log out. But Jesus also urges something that I need you to recognize. He urges discernment. We need to discern and be wise about people who we ask to do this work with us. We need to discern people who have walked this life of transformation and growth themselves first. We need to seek out people who have done the work. Not someone who has no interest in self-reflection or change, not someone with the exact same log in their eye, and we're the blind leading the blind. No, we need to find someone who has walked a life of healing and transformation so they can help us see the way. And this isn't necessarily an age thing. It often does come with age, it comes with years, but it's not always that case. I know plenty of bitter old people who have not done the work of self-reflection themselves. We have to discern who has grown and done that spiritual work. And here's the hard part. When you do find them, when you do the relational work with them, when you build the trust and you have the conversation and they tell you what's going on, you gotta listen. You see, we often, even when we meet these people and they tell us the truth, we're like, ah, I don't know about that. And we still prefer our perspective over the truth we're hearing. I went through this a few years ago. It's a story that always makes my growth group laugh. I was doing real spiritual work for the first time after hitting rock bottom spiritually and emotionally. And I was talking to my mentor, and he had, he had helped me name and deal with all this stuff that I had never seen before. And it got to this point where he was trying to get me to take part in some practices and to get rid of some things that I just, quite frankly, didn't want to do. So what do I do? I start debating with him. I'm the only person in Christian history who needs to do X, Y, or Z. Because <laughs> you guys just don't know me. And I'm arguing, and I'm, I'm showing him why I don't need to do this. And he says, Mike, do you agree that you hit rock bottom? I say, yes, of course I do. I know that happened. 
He said, I need you to understand that your best thinking got you there. Talk about a gut punch. We often tell ourselves that we can think our way out of the problems that our current way of thinking created. And we usually just create better hidden problems, don't we? We need to change our minds. We need to change how we think. We need someone else's help in both naming it and talking to us about what the solutions to those logs are. And the good news is that Jesus is pretty clear. If we are willing to do this work, if we're willing to walk this path, we will grow into a new posture defined by growth, transformation, grace, and love. Even in my short walk with this stuff, what I find is I start to develop the eyes of Christ towards myself and other people. I lose interest in judging or condemning people at all sometimes because I know how useless it is and how it's not my right. And instead, what I develop is the ability to see them, love them, and extend grace. And when I'm able to do that, I truly believe that I get to be a little bit more of a light in the world. Because when I find that good news, I tend to be a little bit more good news to other people too. 